You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former Trump campaign chairman Steve Bannon was defiant and combative after appearing before a judge to face criminal contempt charges for ignoring subpoenas from the House committee investigating the U.S. Capitol riot. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense on this and stand by. Contempt of Congress charges are rare and politically messy, something the Justice Department hasn't pursued since 1983. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Is the DOJ on solid footing here with this prosecution? Given Bannon's complete failure to even engage with the committee, he virtually invited Congress to seek criminal contempt charges against him and really placed the Department of Justice in a difficult position. If this was a case in which the Department of Justice was not going to act to hold somebody in criminal contempt and to seek an indictment against them for violating the congressional subpoena, then it's hard to imagine a case that would justify that action. Outside the courthouse, he said a few things. One, he said, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. We're going to go on the offense. What can he actually do besides file motions? Well, he can file motions, and he can actually make this case a bit more complicated than it may appear on the surface, because ultimately the test here is not really whether or not Bannon's interpretation of the law is correct, but whether prosecutors can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Bannon did not believe his assertion of privilege to be credible. In other words, did he have a good faith basis to assert executive privilege and refuse to cooperate with the committee, even if ultimately it turns out that his claim of privilege is overturned by the courts, and he would be forced to testify. How can they prove what he believed or didn't believe about the executive privilege claim? Well, 
In order for him to rely on executive privilege, he would have to assert what's called an advice of counsel defense. In other words, he would have to argue that he was not testifying based on the advice of his lawyer who told him that executive privilege applied and he did not have to appear to testify before the House. In order to do that, he has to waive his attorney-client privilege with his lawyer and put his lawyer on the stand to talk about the advice that his lawyer gave him. That's a bit of a risky proposition because it opens up to prosecutors any conversation that Bannon may have had with his attorney during the scope of the representation. But ultimately, prosecutors will have to show that his reliance on executive privilege was not a good-faith defense and that he was simply trying to avoid his obligation to testify rather than relying on his lawyer's advice that he didn't have to testify based upon executive privilege. I suppose that's what his current lawyer was referring to outside the courthouse when he said, Mr. Bannon is a lay person. When the privilege has been invoked by the purported holder of privilege, he has no choice but to withhold the documents and said that his lawyer told him to do so. Well, that's only partially true because Executive privilege, while it may be in question in this case, is something that is not asserted in a blanket fashion. In other words, he should have appeared before the committee. His lawyer should have negotiated with the committee to try to work around his claim of executive privilege. And if he is going to assert executive privilege or any other privilege for that matter, he has to do it on a question-by-question basis or a document-by-document basis. It's not appropriate to assert a privilege simply by failing to appear, or in this case, he didn't even show up when he was supposed to testify and only later asserted the privilege. And in doing so, you simply cannot say that I'm asserting privilege as to all questions that may be asked when I appear before the committee, because the committee could certainly ask him questions that are not covered by the executive privilege or any other privilege, and he has an obligation to show up and answer those questions And if he wants to assert privilege, it should be done on a question-by-question or document-by-document basis. There are a couple of things going on. He hasn't worked at the White House for years, and he has refused to answer any questions that the committee wants to ask him. So there are some questions that are going to be outside things he discussed with Donald Trump. Well, that's exactly right. And that's the reason why we have not seen an indictment on contempt of Congress charges in this country since 1983. It's just not something that happens very often because it's a messy power. It's something that's not used by Congress frequently. Instead, what happens is there's usually a bit of a negotiation. The lawyer for the witness reaches out to the lawyers on the committee, and they try to negotiate around these privilege claims. That's something that we've seen the other witnesses who have been subpoenaed to testify before the committee try to do. In this case, Bannon simply stonewalled the committee, did not cooperate, did not respond. His lawyer did not engage, simply tried to assert a blanket privilege claim and flatly refused to cooperate in any manner. He was essentially begging the committee to make this referral and testing Merrick Garland as to whether or not he would do something that hadn't been done in many, many years, and that is to indict him for criminal contempt for failing to appear before Congress. Could this backfire on the committee? Well, it could backfire in the sense that this will be a long, drawn-out process. This is now a criminal case where motions will be filed and there will be discovery exchanged. And ultimately, if Mr. Bannon takes this 
to the final hour, it will be a trial, which may not happen for months or even over a year. And the problem that the House committee is facing is that they are under a bit of a timeline here because the midterm elections could ultimately turn the House over from the Democrats to the Republicans, and that would undoubtedly end the life of this committee, and the House could then simply uh, withdraw the subpoena. The unofficial deadline for this is the 2022 midterm elections because the committee will probably be disbanded after that. But that doesn't mean the prosecution against Bannon stops, does it? That's in the hands of the Justice Department. No, that's right. It it simply means that it could take a long time before the Bannon case is ultimately resolved through the legal system. The last time we saw someone challenge a congressional subpoena during the Trump administration, former White House counsel Don McGahn was subpoenaed by the House Judiciary Committee in April of 2019. Ultimately, he did not testify for over two years later. So this could be a long, drawn-out process. And in the end, it's not even clear that they will get Bannon to testify because the contempt would simply put him in jail for a minimum of one month and up to a year on each of the two counts. But it still does not force him to appear before the committee to testify. And at the midterm elections, should the House turn over to the Republicans, the committee would likely be disbanded and there would be no committee left for him to be forced to testify in front of. Even the committee members are saying that doing this is sort of a warning to other people who might choose to defy the committee's request for information. And former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows failed to appear for a deposition on Friday. And he said that He's exerted, and rightfully so, his executive privilege. And it's not up to me to waive it. And so it's got me between a rock and a hard space. Does President Trump have any real hold on him with these claims of executive privilege? Well, the privilege belongs to the executive branch. So the question here is whether it belongs to the current White House. President Biden has waived executive privilege to allow the committee to continue its investigation, or whether or not the former president still has some residual privilege that he can assert. There actually is some legal precedent for some limited privilege for a president even after he left office. So that issue will have to ultimately be decided by the courts. And in the interim, Mark Meadows, who was President Trump's chief of staff and who was working in the White House on January 6th, is taking the position that that issue has to be resolved before he can come before Congress and testify. But he has taken a very different approach than Bannon. He has engaged with the committee. His lawyer has engaged with the committee. They have attempted to work out some areas of inquiry that he could answer, some documents that he could turn over. That is the way these things typically go forward. It's really a situation with Steve Bannon where he is almost begging Congress to hold him in contempt and almost begging the Department of Justice to indict him. So in some ways, he got exactly what he asked for. But in the end, will it force Bannon to testify? Probably not. Bannon is wearing this indictment like a badge of honor. It's something that he not only was inviting, but now seems to be reveling in. And ultimately, if he's convicted, he may spend some time in jail, but there's no way to force him to appear before that committee and give testimony. Well, he came to the courthouse with his own camera crew. So he's enjoying this and he's using it to pump up his podcast. So now, Mark Meadows, the committee said in a statement that 
he failed to show, he's refused to even indicate whether he used a personal cell phone on January 6th and how lawmakers might retrieve his text messages. So it doesn't sound like it's much cooperation going on. No, it is, and it's more than Bannon and his lawyer engaged in, but he's still essentially refusing to cooperate. The problem is that the case against Meadows is not quite as strong as it is against Bannon because Meadows was working in the White House at the time, and much of the questioning to Meadows has to do with advice that he may have given to the president on January 6th. Although it's also clear from the subpoena that went to Mark Meadows that the committee is also seeking information that not only about the January 6th insurrection, but also about events that happened subsequently, such as the president's phone call to the secretary of state in Georgia after the election and some other steps that were taken after the election to try to influence the outcome and to try to prevent President Biden's election from being certified. So it's a broad subpoena, but all in all, it still falls within the question of whether or not the president can assert executive privilege when he's no longer in office. And that's what Mark Meadows is relying on in trying to delay any appearance before this committee. And yet he appeared on TV. And what he said, too, was you and I both know that no one in the West Wing had any knowledge that anything like what happened on January 6th was going to happen. I wonder if he's making his case in public to tell the committee, I don't know anything. Well, I think he is trying to signal to the committee that there's nothing really there for him to testify about. But again, he has to appear before the committee and try to assert the claims of executive privilege on a question-by-question basis, something that he has not yet agreed to do. We'll have to see how that plays out. But ultimately, I think the committee will likely come to some compromise position with Mark Meadows because they're really not in a position to seek criminal contempt charges against witness after witness after witness. It's something that is done very rarely, and it is really more of a surgical kind of attack on a particular witness who refuses to cooperate. It's not something that can be done in a wholesale manner against a group of witnesses who are simply refusing to cooperate with the investigation. I know they're working under tight deadlines here, but why so many subpoenas, and is that a good strategy? The committee has argued that subpoenaing 35 people and interviewing over 150 people was necessary in order to fully investigate the events of January 6th and the days leading up to that insurrection. But it is a bit of a risky strategy by the committee because in issuing 35 subpoenas, it's possible that more individuals may simply refuse to cooperate, and the committee cannot hold them all in criminal contempt and refer all of those cases over to the Justice Department and expect Attorney General Merrick Garland to prosecute all of them. So in some ways, it is a bit of a risky strategy by casting such a broad net and by subpoenaing so many individuals. We'll have to see how that ultimately plays out. So far, they have gotten quite a few people to cooperate, and we don't know how many of those 35 people who received subpoenas have cooperated. But it could backfire on them if a number of individuals simply refuse to cooperate because, as a practical matter, it's going to be impossible for the committee to enforce every one of those subpoenas. So, Bob, as you said, contempt of Congress charges are rare and politically messy, something the Justice Department hasn't pursued since 1983. Give us a little of the history here. 
The road that we're seeing Congress go down with regard to Steve Bannon is something that Congress does not take lightly and, frankly, does not engage in very often. It happens only infrequently. The last time there was a successful prosecution, it goes all the way back to the Watergate era when G. Gordon Liddy and Richard Kleindienst were convicted and pleaded guilty for refusing to answer congressional inquiries. The last indictment we saw in a contempt of Congress case was three decades ago involving a federal environmental official under President Ronald Reagan who failed to respond to a House subpoena. The official, Rita Lavelle, who headed the Superfund, would ultimately go on to be acquitted of the contempt charge but was later convicted of lying to Congress and sentenced to six months in prison and fined $10,000. But the Justice Department historically has been very wary of prosecuting these cases, particularly in a situation where the witness who are being subpoenaed and who are being held in contempt are of the opposite political party from the House and the Department of Justice that may be considering prosecuting them. And that's because this whole process has a bit of a history of being fraught with political overtones. Congress used contempt citations during the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was formed in 1938 to investigate individuals and organizations for subversive activities, particularly those related to the Communist Party. That was a case in which many people in the film industry went to prison rather than testify about their colleagues who may have exhibited support for communist or communist-leaning organizations. They were blacklisted for their failure to cooperate, and it's something that has been a bit of a stain on the House of Representatives ever since. So it's something that has not been used much in recent years. In fact, during the Obama administration, the Department of Justice declined to prosecute then-Attorney General Eric Holder and former IRS official Lois Lerner following contempt referrals from the Republican-led House. Similarly, George W. Bush's Justice Department declined to charge Harriet Myers after the former White House counsel defied a subpoena in a Democratic investigation into mass firings of United States attorneys. In all, the House has brought five criminal contempt and three civil contempt actions against executive branch officials since 2008. And in each case, the executive branch, the Department of Justice, has refused to pursue those cases criminally. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Texas schools can once again set their own mask rules after a loss for Governor Greg Abbott in the first federal court ruling over his anti-mask crusade. Federal Judge Lee Yackel permanently blocked Abbott's edict banning school mask mandates, ruling it was a violation of disabled students' right to equally access educational facilities. Joining me is Tom Melsheimer, a partner at Winston & Strawn, who represented the students at trial. Tell us your main argument to the judge. Well, we represented a group of, of students with disabilities who were challenging Governor Abbott's executive order banning mask mandates in public schools. And the argument that we made successfully was that the order restricting the use of mask mandates violated the Americans with Disabilities Act and related statutes because it prevented school districts from making reasonable accommodations to assist students with disabilities get the full benefits of an in-person education. So it really starts with the premise that an in-person education is what every student is entitled to and that there are strong benefits to in-person education that cannot be duplicated virtually or online. And that to say that the disabled students, to the extent they had heightened fears or risk of COVID, to say that they could simply stay home and take classes virtually, that's not an answer under the law and under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the, the whole premise was that kids with disabilities were entitled to at least uh, ask for mask requirements and school districts were entitled to consider them as a reasonable accommodation and the the governor's order preventing that basically uh, interfered with and violated the civil rights of these of these disabled kids the governor's order was there an order specifically relating to schools yes well actually the order barred all all kinds of mask mandates in public settings including in school districts and so we were focused on the application of it in uh, the public schools. What was the argument that the state made? Well, the legal argument they made was interesting. And so let me say what they didn't say. They didn't challenge that the masking was effective at mitigating the risk of COVID. They didn't challenge that the disabled kids were at higher risk of uh, side effects and bad consequences from COVID. They didn't challenge any of that. They basically argued that our clients lacked standing to sue to block enforcement of this order. And this is where it gets tricky because the state says this order doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. It doesn't delegate enforcement of the order to, say, the attorney general or to the local district attorney or whatever. It doesn't say anything about who enforces it. It just says you can't have mass mandates 
And if you have a mask mandate, you're subject to a $10,000 a day fine. Okay. And they said, well, you can't sue in federal court the attorney general because he's not specifically authorized to enforce the statute. So you're suing the wrong person, essentially. Now, (laughs) our position was, well, wait a minute. The attorney general is out there suing school districts for violating GA 38. I mean, he's sending threatening letters to school districts. He's filing lawsuits seeking injunctive relief to prohibit the use of mass mandates. So what is he doing if not enforcing it? This is the, you know, looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck. It's a duck. But the state took the position that that doesn't matter. The fact that the attorney general was suing to enforce the anti-mask mandate, the fact that he was threatening school districts, if he didn't have the authority in the regulation or order itself, he couldn't be sued. And that was really the gist of their argument. Did the Department of Justice weigh in? They did. They weighed in on the issue of uh, violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the and the use of masking as a reasonable accommodation. I mean, we look, we argued that masking was really no different from ramps. That you know, imagine you had a a state order or regulation or executive order that said school districts can't have ramps. Now, we would say, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't the school districts have the ability to use ramps if they had students in wheelchairs or students that needed assistance in accessing the school or a particular part of the school? And that's really what the Justice Department weighed in on as well as just saying, look, this is a reasonable accommodation that the students ought to be entitled to. The other thing that is important that I don't think everyone fully appreciates, and the state tried to argue that we were making this point when we were not, which is this was not a case where we were arguing that you had to have mask mandates. We were not arguing for universal masking. We were not saying that the only way to mitigate COVID for disabled students is masking. We weren't saying that. We simply were saying that you can't take that out of the arsenal of weapons against COVID. And if you do that, it's akin to saying you can't have ramps in schools. It's taking out an accommodation that ought to be available to the school districts if they choose to enact it. So tell us about the judge's ruling. Well, again, he took note of the fact that the state did not question the risk of COVID in the schools. The state did not question the risk of COVID to children with disabilities. The state did not challenge or question the efficacy of masking. And given those, in effect, agreed to or stipulated facts, he concluded that the executive order of Governor Abbott violated the Americans with Disabilities Act because it prevented school districts from offering masking as an accommodation. So he joined the enforcement of it by the attorney general, and his injunction prohibits the attorney general from threatening school districts or from suing school districts to enforce GA 38, the so-called anti-mask mandate. That's really the sum and substance of it. And he was the first federal judge to rule on Abbott's mask ban. Well, so absolutely the first federal judge in in Texas to rule on anything with respect to the mask mandate. But it's even broader than that. There were a number of these challenges brought in federal courts throughout the country, in Iowa, in Tennessee, in Florida, a number of these cases where governors had issued similar orders 
purporting to ban the use of mask mandates. What was unique about this case is that it was a final trial on the merits. Those other cases were preliminary matters where a group of disabled students or a disabled students' rights group were seeking preliminary relief or expedited or emergency relief. Judge Yackel's ruling in Texas was a full trial on the merits after discovery. So this was a final judgment. This isn't a temporary ruling pending a trial. We conducted all the discovery. We did all the briefing on the motion practice, and we had a full trial in October, uh, which he then ruled on with a complete record. So this means that at this point, school districts in Texas can require masks? They absolutely can require masks. And, you know, I want to make this point because a lot of people think it's sort of a binary thing, masks or no masks. But the truth is you can have masking in a classroom. You can have masking requirements in a wing of a school. You can have masking requirements in a particular school in a broader district. And this injunction that Judge Yackel entered allows school districts across Texas to do whatever they think makes sense. And you may have a small rural district with a handful of students and no students with disabilities. Those school districts may like to say, you know, we don't need a mask mandate where we are. You've got school districts in in, uh, in, in Houston or, or Dallas or, or elsewhere that are dealing with large numbers of disabled students in their school population. They're going to elect potentially to say, yes, we need mask mandates to you know, protect our students. So it's, it's, it's going to be sort of the freedom of these districts to tailor the appropriate masking requirement to their particular situation. The state is going to appeal. That appeal will be to the Fifth Circuit, which is the most conservative circuit in the country. What are your chances on appeal? I like our chances in part for the reasons I stated earlier that the state did not challenge really any of our factual assertions about the risk of COVID to disabled students, the efficacy of masking. That's not going to be debated in the appellate court. The only issue that's really going to be before the appellate court is going to be this issue of standing. And I think we've got the better of the position on that. You know, this is the same issue in a slightly different circumstance that is before the Supreme Court in Texas uh, Senate Bill 8, the statute which allows private citizens to sue abortion providers or those individuals assisting in an abortion after a certain period of time of the pregnancy. That case involves a private citizen suing, and the state of Texas's view in that case is, hey, we're not suing anyone. We're not prohibiting anyone from doing anything. It's all private citizens. It's a similar issue here that they're arguing. They're saying the attorney general's not really enforcing this order. I just think the record that was developed in front of Judge Yackel, the record of numerous lawsuits filed by the attorney general, the record of letters written threatening school districts, the record of school districts that had mass mandates that then withdrew their mass mandates upon getting a threatening letter or a threatening phone call from the attorney general's office or after they were sued. I think that record is very, very strong for finding that in this case, the plaintiffs do have standing to bring this kind of challenge. 
so so you think it will ju- the issue is just going to be what we a procedural issue it's it's not going to go to the heart of should there be masks or not I don't think it can go to that because for whatever reason the state did not challenge the science they didn't have their own experts. They, they didn't offer, for example, an expert that said that masks are, are deleterious in some way or they have a harmful impact or that masks aren't necessary or masks don't work. They didn't challenge that at all. So that's why, I mean, of course you never know what a reviewing court's going to do. There's a lot of unpredictability in this. But this wasn't joined issue on mask efficacy or the science. The issue was only joined with respect to these procedural issues, which are important issues. I'm not minimizing them, but the state is not going to be able to go in front of the Fifth Circuit or or any higher court and make arguments that they didn't make in front of Judge Jekyll about masking or, or the efficacy of masking or the need for masking. Do school districts in Texas favor masks? I think it depends on the school district. I think a lot of the urban school districts that have uh, large populations, very diverse student populations, including significant populations of uh, students with disabilities, they absolutely do favor them. I think school districts that are in rural communities that are smaller, that are less diverse, I think they typically don't. But it's not one size fits all. There are some more rural districts that have been seeking to have mass requirements. There are some larger school districts that have decided they don't need them. And that, and that's really, of all the things we did in our argument in this case, I think you know the, the strategic decision that we made early on to frame this as not pro-mask, anti-mask, but to frame it as giving these districts the ability to put in ramps if they want to, but they don't have to. If they've got kids with peanut allergies, they can decide we're not going to have peanuts in the cafeteria. Giving them the freedom and flexibility, I think that resonated with the judge, and I think it will resonate more generally. Thanks, Tom. That's Tom Melsheimer of Winston & Strawn. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo could be forced to return the more than $5 million earned from his pandemic book. The Joint Commission on Public Ethics, New York's ethics watchdog, voted Tuesday to rescind its approval for Cuomo to write American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. In a 12-to-1 vote, the panel said Cuomo violated the commission's requirements that he write the book on his own time and also took issue with the book's content. But an attorney for Cuomo said the former governor is ready to take the matter to court. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, tell us why Cuomo needed permission to write the book. So the former governor needed approval given his position, his public official position at that time as the governor. Um, It required him to seek approval to uh, ensure that he wasn't using government resources and government time to write what would be a private book for, obviously, private compensation. He secured the approval, but they have rescinded it now based on the conclusion. And some of this came out in the earlier media reporting. Some of it came out in Letitia James's report into the sexual um, misconduct allegations that he had sort of pressured various officials to, quote-unquote, volunteer their time, and that the premise of the book was not what he had originally explained to the commission it would be. And it raised doubts in the commission about whether or not there had been you know, a lack of candor. 
than how he got the original approval. And that's why they took the action they did. What do they want him to do? He's gotten about $3 million already. What are they expecting him to do? He can essentially, he can refund the money or he can try to basically sue them claiming that the essence of their conclusion was flawed and was not sufficiently based on the existing legal factors. And what they're going to argue, and you've seen some of that foreshadowed in the attorney's initial responses, is that this comes down to, at most, a miscommunication, that there was paperwork between the two groups, between the commission and Cuomo's lawyers, that the understanding of what this would be was laid out there, and if there was a miscommunication, it was on the commission's side, not Cuomo's side, and that, in fact, there was no pressure on people to, quote-unquote, volunteer their time. That's going to be their argument. My assumption, my expectation is that this will be settled. He'll refund some portion of the book advance and the profit, and then it will continue on. There's not a lot the commission can do beyond that. There's too much gray area and nuance here for them to really push this too far. My expectation is they'll just want to get their you know chunk of flesh, take some money back, and make him refund it, and go on from there. So Cuomo's spokesman released documents outlining the distinction between the use of public resources versus staff volunteering their own time. He said it's the height of hypocrisy for Hochul, the governor of New York, and the legislature's appointees to take this position, given that these elected officials routinely use their own staff for political and personal assistance on their own time. Now, that is true. If they start looking that into is this. very true. So if, if it came to court action, these people might come up and say, well, yeah, we volunteered. Then they what? certainly could. And if those individuals want to come forward with sworn testimony, whether in writing or verbal testimony in state, yes, I completely volunteered. I in no way was pressured to do so. This was of my own free will. That would certainly undermine the commission's argument. There'd still be the separate issue of whether or not the premise of the book that came out was consistent with what was originally conveyed and was the basis for approval. It was supposed to be a follow-up to the 2015-2014 book. It ended up being something different, tied more to the pandemic. It's something where he could have potentially gotten approval, even with that premise, but the commission's argument is, you didn't tell us that's how it was going to be. You misled us, and that was your misleading premise was what got you approval in the first place. So there's a lot to still be worked out here. I almost certainly expect there will be a lawsuit that this will be challenged in court. There will be lots of depositions and documentation collected, and this is why I expect it will settle at some point for some amount of money that will be a confidential settlement. To say that the book was different from what they thought it would be, I mean, they would have given him permission to write another book. It just seems as if they're grasping at straws there. You know, he could say the book evolved as I was writing it. Yeah, and if, you know, if, if nothing else, this is you know sort of the commission doing what it wants to here because it can. He's obviously politically weakened. There's a question about you know improper abuse of authority that's already existing. They see an opportunity to kind of strike while the iron is hot. It doesn't mean that their conclusions are inappropriate or not based in good faith upon the existing facts. But of course, it does raise a concern about whether or not this is their own you know, abuse of discretion, which I'm sure will be part of whatever the litigation is that the former governor's lawyers will almost certainly bring, is they'll try to point to essentially a politicization of the process. They'll try to claim 
this is overreach and an abuse of the discretion of the commission. Whether or not that argument will go anywhere remains to be seen. I don't expect it will, but it'll play into sort of the all-encompassing all political aspect of this when former Governor Cuomo almost certainly tries to make a comeback. So let me ask you this, Brad. Would the commission bring the lawsuit or would Cuomo bring the lawsuit? Because the commission doesn't have any power to do anything, do they? So Governor Cuomo would bring the lawsuit because if he takes no action right now in light of this vote, the commission can move. And I'm not sure of the specific mechanism, whether they refer to another entity or if they have the power themselves to implement it. But they can move to basically impose like the equivalent of a lien or a monetary sanction against him personally for the money he was able to collect based off this now rescinded approval. So he will think of it as the equivalent of. The government has gotten uh, imposed, got ready to impose a lien on your house, and you sue to challenge the, the authority of them to do so or the basis for them doing so. Uh, that's basically the context of which he'll bring almost certainly this lawsuit. And where would the money go? He Does he return the money to the publisher so they have the unintended benefit? It would likely get donated, whether to a charitable organization or quite possibly to some type of fund that would go through the government. My assumption is it can't go to the New York state government in any form, but it can almost certainly get refunded to a charitable organization of some sort, which is probably what will happen anyway. But none of this is, is written down. This is like the first time this has happened. I can't say if it's the first time ever. A lot of this isn't always public. Um, I'll say that it's not often that you would see this, especially for someone of such prominence and seniority as the governor of the state of New York. Um, this speaks very much to the current time frame we're in in terms of the willingness of these institutions to buck the political um, authorities, but also the very weakened position that former Governor Cuomo is in, given everything that's gone on the last few months. Let's say there is a lawsuit. He doesn't give in. There's no settlement. Who has the better argument in a lawsuit? I think in the end, the commission could win out if they take it all the way. My assumption and expectation, as I've been saying, is I think they will ultimately settle it for some, you know, confidential amount, make him donate it to charity and leave it at that and allow the public optics of it to be there and to have set sort of the standard. Investigations into this book are still going on by the State Assembly, the State Attorney General's Office, and the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. So we could hear more about this in the future. You absolutely could, um, whether from a civil context or from a criminal one, depending on the full range of actions he took. And I would certainly say the jury is still out in terms of how much trouble Andrew Cuomo got himself into. I don't anticipate much more going on beyond what's already occurred. And it sounds like the criminal allegations that have been made might not survive legal scrutiny, not to say factual scrutiny. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. I'm sure Cuomo could write a book now and get a lot more money than that. And he almost certainly will. And it'll be sort of a tour to a redemption, trying to, you know, make up for his sins and explain how he's understood where he went wrong, which is a very standard move for a politician to make. And there's no one better at it than Andrew Cuomo. Thanks so much for being on the show, Brad. That's Brad Moss, a partner in Mark Zaid. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.